this is an Ask Me Anything podcast. I've now received hundreds of questions on Twitter and in other formats, and I'll try to get through several of them, but many have converged on a single topic, which will come as no surprise, the recent atrocities in Paris, the murders of the Charlie Hebdo cartoonists, and the murders in the Jewish market. And also many of you are concerned about the subsequent self-censorship, which has really been quite amazing to witness. It's just astonishing that the media cannot do the one thing that it could do to keep it and everyone else safe. And it can't do the one thing that would have kept the Charlie Hebdo cartoonists safe, which is publish en masse all of these cartoons and present a united front against this creeping theocracy. So I'll try to say a few things on this topic. I haven't commented on it publicly yet, and um, while I've been circulating the, the interviews done by friends and colleagues like Majid Nawaz and Ayan Hirsi Ali and Douglas Murray, all of whom have been excellent, I've been declining interviews myself, and I'm not quite sure why I've been doing that. I think the main reason is that it's just become toxic for me to say over and over again that which should really go without saying and to then be vilified for it. It's, it really is no fun dealing with this topic. Although I am writing a short book with Majid Nawaz, the working title of which is Islam and the Future of Tolerance. And I'm very happy about that. Majid is, is doing amazing work, and he's really just indispensable. Uh, and we're having a very good conversation. And that will be published in June, at the latest, I hope, by Harvard University Press. Uh, and beyond everything we may or may not agree about, I think we've produced an example of a fundamentally different conversation on this the problem of Islam at this moment. And, and if you don't know who Majid is, you should Google him. He's a former Islamist who obviously knows exactly why Islamists do what they do. Uh, but now he's a reformer, and he's, he's quite articulate on the topic of how to move Islam forward. And while I'm skeptical of that project and increasingly worry that it might be hopeless, he and I managed to have a very good conversation. So I will alert you all to the birth of that book when it occurs. Uh, but perhaps I can say a few things about recent events in the meantime. Well, the first thing to say is that the response of liberals, and again, it is so depressing to have to use the term liberal in a pejorative way in this context, but liberalism has completely lost its moorings on the topic of Islam. Needless to say, we have all the usual suspects, Glenn Greenwald and Reza Aslan and Chris Hedges and Karen Armstrong, and as unreadable as these people have become, you can't help but notice the stupid things they say about Islam, even in the immediate aftermath of an atrocity like this. And as will come as no surprise, they will tell you that this has nothing to do with Islam. It has nothing to do with heartfelt religious convictions. No, it has everything to do with capitalism and the oppression of minorities and the racism of white people in Europe and the, the racism of cartoonists at a magazine like Charlie Hebdo. You know, that is the cause of this behavior. That's what causes someone to grab an AK-47 and murder 12 cartoonists and then scream Allahu Akbar in the streets. It is a completely insane analysis. I mean, even if you grant everything that's wrong with capitalism and the history of colonialism, you should not be able to deny that these religious maniacs are motivated by concerns about blasphemy and the depiction of the Prophet Muhammad and consider their behavior entirely ethical in light of specific religious doctrines. And it's a kind of masochism and moral cowardice and lack of intelligence, frankly, at this point, that is allowing people to deny this fact. 
And then we have the practice of self-censorship, which is completely understandable and, and entirely based on fear. And the reason why it's understandable is that this fear is actually quite rational if you were the only person or news organization printing pictures of the Prophet Muhammad. And that's why every newspaper and magazine and news outlet on earth should have agreed to print the latest Charlie Hebdo cover immediately on the same day and spread the risk. We hear everywhere about this false trade-off between freedom of speech and freedom of religion, as though there was some kind of balance to be struck here. There is no balance to be struck. Freedom of speech never infringes on freedom of religion. There's nothing I could say in this podcast about religion generally, or about Islam in particular, that would infringe upon someone else's freedom to practice his or her religion. If your freedom of religion entails that you force those who do not share it to conform to it, well then that's not freedom of religion. That, we have a word for that. That's theocracy. This respect that we are all urged to show for, quote, religious sensitivity is actually a demand that the blasphemy laws of Islam be followed by non-Muslims. And secular liberals in the West are defending this thuggish ultimatum and putting the lives of cartoonists and journalists and freethinkers and public intellectuals in jeopardy day after day. So we're harming ourselves when we practice censorship on this point. The Muslim world simply has to get used to free speech winning. And we should make no apologies for this. But there are several double standards that are quite harmful on this point. For instance, it is illegal in France and Germany and a few other countries in Western Europe to deny the Holocaust. That's a bad law. A person should be absolutely free to deny the Holocaust, which is to say he should be free to destroy his reputation, and others should be free to ridicule him and to boycott his business. There shouldn't be a law against this kind of idiocy. And making this category of speech illegal is a terrible mistake. And Islamists and, and liberals are using this mistake as a basis to condemn the so-called hypocrisy of all the people who are defending Charlie Hebdo at this moment. Whatever you think about the content of the Charlie Hebdo cartoons, and as many people have pointed out, this content has been misunderstood outside of France. Cartoons that appear racist to a non-French speaker, to someone who's ignorant of French politics, are anything but racist when you, when you understand the context. But even if you granted that most of these cartoons were racist and therefore offensive, you have to concede that protecting this speech becomes important when you have one group of people, quote, radical Muslims, who are responding to this offense with credible threats of murder in every country on earth. We can't give in to this. So here's one sign that a person, whether he's on the left or the right politically, has completely lost the plot here. The moment he begins to ask, what was in those cartoons? Were those cartoons racist? Was that a negative portrayal of Muhammad? To ask such questions is obscene. People have been murdered over cartoons. End of moral analysis. And we are seeing a total capitulation on the part of news organizations in the face of this terror. The fact that the New York Times will not print the current cover of Charlie Hebdo, even though it is absolutely newsworthy, and even though they are writing articles about it, is shocking. And we should notice how euphemism is preventing honest conversation on this topic. And we, we use words like extremist and extremism. What do these words mean? Well, extremism generally suggests that an expression of a certain set of ideas has become an exaggeration or distortion of those ideas. But when we're talking about Muslim extremists, 
Have they really exaggerated or distorted the core teachings of Islam? No, Muslim extremists are motivated by the most literal and straightforward and comprehensive resort to the ideas expressed in the Quran and the Hadith. What is ISIS doing that Muhammad didn't do or didn't advocate somewhere in scripture? Good luck finding something important. And that's a fact that we just have to absorb. That is a body blow to political correctness that just has to land and land hard. Happily, someone like Majid Nawaz is prepared to talk about this. I mean, he, he's prepared to take the other side in a conversation with me in this case, and he can do it without lying about the connection between what people believe and their behavior in the world. And he should be distinguished in your mind from someone like Reza Aslan, who is a fount of lies and misdirection on this topic. Reza is one of these people who has said in recent days that the murder of cartoonists and Jews in Paris was due to the failure of integration of Muslims in France, and the racism that has been directed at them. This is leveraging a, a very common intuition that there must be two sides to every conflict, right? So there's two sides to this story. On the one hand, you have the racism of Charlie Hebdo and its readers, and on the other side, you have the poor immigrants who are struggling to assimilate in a hostile society. That's what causes people to slaughter cartoonists while shouting, we have avenged the prophet. This politically correct analysis is morally insane. And news organizations and readers should lose their patience for it. To, to focus on the content of the cartoons, as people like Aslan and Greenwald have done, as though it were somehow morally relevant, is a disgrace. And the moment that someone does it, he has tipped his hand. Okay, it is a perfect litmus test. I, I get the sense that people still don't understand what we're dealing with here. Have you seen any of these recent interviews with captured ISIS fighters? Religion is the whole story. They are totally fixated on getting into paradise. In fact, the Kurds have put female soldiers into the field, and this terrifies members of ISIS because they believe that they won't go to paradise if they get killed by a woman. Okay, they, they literally run away from these female soldiers. Okay, it's like a culture of psychotic and psychopathic children. And just consider the attitude they show toward real children. I mean, of course, they've been murdering Shia and Christian and Yazidi children, burying them alive and crucifying them, but they seem happy to inflict needless horror on their own children. I mean, you may have read a story recently about a street magician in Raqqa, Syria, who had been entertaining children for years. ISIS deemed his activities un-Islamic and cut his head off. Just imagine what it is like to be a child in this context. Imagine the sort of men and women that such a childhood will produce. The crucial thing to understand is that stories like that do not represent an excessive use of force by a few deranged individuals. All of this butchery, the murder of journalists and aid workers, the torture of women who get caught breastfeeding in public, is as central to the project of jihadism as an opening of a new Starbucks is for us. This is what they think is best about themselves. This is what they use to advertise their project to the rest of the world. Video footage of an aid worker an aid worker getting his head cut off is part of their recruiting materials. These horrible stories coming out of Syria and Iraq, this is not their Milai massacre. This is what they unabashedly stand for. This is an expression of a worldview. And this worldview is contagious. It doesn't matter if a person's had direct contact with Al-Qaeda or ISIS or whether he's, quote, a lone wolf. Right? We're talking about the spread of ideas. Again, ideas about martyrdom and jihad and paradise and the rights of women and blasphemy. 
The point we cannot ignore, the point that should never be obfuscated, is that we are at war with a global phenomenon of jihadism. And there can be no compromise with this death cult. And these fake liberals, these fellow travelers with theocracy, these people who in the name of liberalism protect only political correctness and masochism, they are absolutely part of the problem. They are preventing us from demanding that the Muslim community worldwide get its act together. And this is why expressions of horror and rejection are insufficient in the Muslim community. Of course you're horrified by this behavior if you're a decent human being and have even a tenuous connection to civil society in the 21st century. But that's not enough. Muslims have to honestly grapple with the bad doctrines in their faith. They can no longer just say that Islam is a religion of peace. They can no longer lie about the doctrines that relate to martyrdom and jihad and apostasy and the rights of women. Muslims have to fight a civil war of ideas or a civil war against jihadism and Islamism generally. That's what has to happen. It's not a matter of blaming all Muslims for the actions of a few. It's a matter of demanding a reformation within Islam that only Muslims can accomplish. The civilized world is waiting for this to happen, and people will continue to die until it does. And of course, most of the people dying are Muslims. As I said, the conversation I'm having with Majid Nawaz is directly on this point. And Majid is doing extremely important work with the Quilliam Foundation, and I encourage you all to look him up if you're not aware of who he is. Well, moving on to a very different topic, about which I've also received several questions. I released a video of a lecture I gave in the fall on the subject of my book, Waking Up, and that's available on my website. But I received complaints from several readers that I was selling it and not offering it for free. Now, I knew this was coming, and this is actually a, a difficult thing for me to talk about, but I think it's important. We've all begun to expect everything online for free, and I include myself in this. I want to read articles and watch videos, and I don't want to pay anything for them. If someone sends me a link to an article in the Wall Street Journal and I hit their paywall, I'm not going to read it. I, you know, I don't want to subscribe to another newspaper or magazine, certainly not for a single article. And, and money aside, it's just too much of a hassle. But of course, everything can't be free online or no one will be able to make a living producing quality work. We have yet to find an elegant solution to this problem. But the problem runs deeper than this because people actually make a significant effort to find content for free rather than buy it. I've heard from several people, ostensibly fans, who are just waiting to find my waking up video for free on a file sharing site that is illegally pirated. These are people who will express a totally positive orientation toward my work, but they just don't want to spend $4.99 on a video. And in fact, I've heard from people who bought the video and really enjoyed it, but regretted that they had purchased it before they realized that it was available on a file sharing site for free. And of course, it's only available on a file sharing site because somebody, some fan of mine, I suspect, I actually don't think this was malicious, but some fan bought the video and then uploaded it because he felt that he is a better judge of whether it should be offered for free than I am. So this is an interesting problem because I completely understand the expectation that information should be free. Again, I feel it myself online. Paywalls suck. We need to find a more elegant solution than repeatedly asking people to input their credit card information. But we are all experiencing a race to the bottom now, where it's becoming harder and harder to charge for content online, and therefore harder to have a career as a writer or musician or photographer or filmmaker or journalist. Jaron Lanier wrote a very interesting book entitled Who Owns the Future that focuses squarely on this topic. 
Now, content creators are all in competition with one another, of course, for our time and money, but they're also in competition with free versions of themselves. For instance, I wrote a book, Lion, a very short book, and it was initially published, I think, for $2.99 as an ebook. And I received complaints from people who noticed that they could read 8,000 or 10,000 word articles on my blog for free. And they were now wondering why they should be expected to pay anything, even just $2.99, for an essay of similar length as an ebook. So it's, it's interesting to see what's happening here. I'm losing a competition with a free version of myself. I was being penalized for having written blog articles that were so long and fulfilling, apparently, that they seemed to undermine any justification for charging for something of similar length in the future. And this is a weird situation to be in. For instance, I just spoke about a book that Majid Nawaz and I are writing. It's, it's of similar length and format to some of the longest conversations I've had on my blog. And the question will be asked, why not just release this on your blog for free? Well, there are several reasons, but the main one is that it takes a lot of time to do this well. And I asked a lot of Majid's time to get this book written. And it is just unsustainable to spend this kind of time again and again and again and again for free. And most of the writing I do is for free, and most of the speaking I've done has been for free. But it has to be subsidized by work that is financially viable. If you like reading my blog articles, or you like listening to podcasts or seeing videos of me online for free, the only way to support this work is to buy the thing I'm selling when I'm selling it. And in the case of this waking up video, I was actually trying to do something unusual. I produced a video that is obviously of higher quality than anything that's likely to happen on its own when I get invited to give a lecture and then someone records it and puts it online. And it turns out that it's very expensive to do this. You know, it's expensive to merely acquire the footage. I recorded three separate talks in three separate cities, and this was all done professionally with a five-camera crew in each city. There really should be no mystery about why I would need to charge for a video like this. It cost over $100,000 to make. So the question of whether it makes sense for me to produce a video of high quality is a question that can only be answered affirmatively by your willingness to pay for it. So I am running an experiment here, and the only way to support it, I'm afraid, is to buy the video and not download the pirated version. Now my concern is that this is all sounding more mercenary than it is. I mean, it is an immense privilege to do the work that I do. I, I actually get paid, sometimes, to do work that I would do anyway for free. I'm not working in a coal mine. But the general picture here, that you should all be aware of, is that it is increasingly difficult to figure out how to get paid for doing work of this kind. I'm in a privileged position to absorb this difficulty, and many other writers and podcasters aren't. So if there's a podcast you love, and you've been listening to it for free for months, and there's some way to support it, you know, they have an Amazon affiliates link on their website, or they have a donate button, I would encourage you to support it, because we're all trying to find some way to cross over into this digital future of media. And free really is the enemy. Free has made it almost impossible for musicians to get paid for their music. Now they're just forced to tour endlessly in order to make up the difference. The problem for writers in particular is that touring is generally not an option. Many writers are not people who can make money speaking. I mean, they, they were writers after all. I mean, unless we can figure out how to subsidize the creation of quality content with something more than banner ads, the entire world is going to become the Huffington Post. Now, unfortunately, I don't know what the solution is, but personally, for the moment at least, I intend to occasionally charge for something that took a lot of work to create and then do the rest of what I do for free. And so, for instance, before I got on this topic, I spent about 15 minutes or so talking about the problem of global jihad. Okay, why did I do that? 
Well, because I think it's a very important problem, obviously. But I wasn't getting paid to do that. And I'm incurring a non-trivial security risk for doing it. So, so think of this in light of my forthcoming book with Majid Nawaz, which also could be offered for free on my blog, but I actually feel that given the amount of time we're putting into it and given the obvious benefit of having Harvard University Press help us launch it, it makes sense to publish it as a book. And so if you are behind the project of speaking honestly about the problem of Islamism and global jihad, and you think I'm contributing something useful to that conversation, or Majid is, then when we publish this book, the only way to cast your vote, not just about the book, but about podcasts like this, is to buy it and read it and talk about it, and not wait for some pirated version of it to be scanned and put online so that you can read it for free. All right, so now that I have browbeaten you all sufficiently, we can move on to other topics. So I have several other questions here, and I will be briefer. Do you think social progress can ever go backward? For example, a return to slavery or public executions? Yes, I do. I, I don't think there's anything about moral progress that is guaranteed. Uh, we conquer ground, and we can lose that ground, and the bad people can certainly win. Uh, so all the more reason to fight evil and lunacy wherever we encounter it. How careful, if at all, should liberal critics of Islam be that their criticisms don't give cover for illiberal racists? <clears throat> well, I, you know, I really, again, I think this is a non-issue. I think that if what you're saying relates to ideas and their consequences, and you're actually not promulgating racism, which is to say you're not concerned about the color of people's skin or their ethnicity, you're just talking about ideas, well, then if people are going to use your clear thinking for some nefarious purpose, that is outside of your control. There obviously are racists who are going to continue to be racists. And on any specific point, their animus toward brown-skinned people or Arabs or immigrants may align with a totally rational concern about specific ideas or social policies. But that's not something you can correct for by not criticizing bad ideas or specific policies. So I really think it is a non-issue. I think we should disparage racism wherever we encounter it. And we should talk candidly about specific ideas, in this case within Islam, like a belief in martyrdom or jihad. So I, I don't see any contradiction there between being committed to clear thinking about dangerous ideas and being committed to treating people as people fairly across the board. How can we convince apologists that religious people really do believe what they say they believe and that their God is not metaphorical? Well, this is actually a very difficult problem. I think that many apologists know that they're lying. So there are dishonest apologists. There are people who know that religious fanatics are motivated by their fanaticism and that it's not politics and it's not economics and that there's a straight line between belief and behavior. And I'm convinced that many apologists know this and they're lying about it for reasons that are generally inscrutable. But there are people who are simply confused. They, they don't know what it's like to believe in God, and for that reason they, they doubt that anyone really does. And this is a difficult problem to get around. I mean, there seems to be no manifestation of religious fanaticism that is so unequivocal as to convince people that it really must have been born of religious ideology rather than some other motive. Now, curiously, they don't tend to feel this about other kinds of religious behavior. So people who go to church on Sundays and they eat the communion host at the mass and they say the rosary. And when you ask people why Catholics in this case would behave this way, well, they will admit that it's on the basis of their Catholic beliefs. 
But when you talk about behavior that causes immense harm in the world, then they ascribe this behavior to some other motive. Even in the case of a suicide bomber who's left a video testimony as to his expectation of getting into paradise. So there, there is no evidence that would be sufficient for many of these people, and they have, for whatever reason, rigged the game this way. They've either rigged their own minds or they've rigged the public conversation, and there's nothing to do but keep talking past them in a hope of reaching other people. During mindfulness, how do you know when you're experiencing consciousness without the ego? Well, it's a little bit like asking, how do you know when you're no longer lost in thought? Okay, it's, it's something you can be wrong about. Just as you can be thinking without knowing that you're thinking, you can be thinking about the illusoriness of the self and not be aware that that's all you're doing, just thinking. Right, so you, you can have an undercurrent of thought present that is uninspected. So you, so you can have a clear moment of seeing the selflessness of consciousness and then get lost in thought again in the next moment and not see that that's occurred. And the character of that thought could just be seeming to extend this intuition about the selflessness of consciousness. So you could just be thinking about how there is no self and about how consciousness is vast and open and spacious, etc. So it is possible to be confused on this topic. But there is an experience of clarity that you can keep repeating. Again, it doesn't have a very long half-life for most people, just a second or two, but its duration can extend the more you practice. And it's a clear dropping out of any sense of there being a center to the field of consciousness. Again, in the midst of what could otherwise be a totally ordinary experience of conscious awareness. So it's like anything else. It can be repeated again and again and inspected again and again until you achieve some kind of clarity and confidence that this is, in fact, what consciousness is like. And it's, and it's like this whenever you remember to look. So it's the repeatability of it that is significant. So what's important to realize is that the selflessness I'm talking about is not a peak experience that you have and then lose and then remember for the rest of your life and think about and hope to get back to. No, it, it is a capacity to notice something about the nature of consciousness in every present moment, the moment you remember to look, the moment you remember that there's an alternative to being lost in thought, which is to say, a, in a moment of mindfulness. So you can either locate this quality of consciousness in this moment, or you can't. And if you can, well, then it's always there to be inspected. So if you think yourself up into a position of doubt about this, and you wonder, well, maybe there really is a self, and maybe I'm just fooling myself, well, then you can look again in this moment. And if you actually have this capacity to look, well, then this feeling of self will again drop away. Then it's, its absence will become obvious. So it is, it is self-authenticating in that sense. It's, it's a direct insight that is repeatable. So again, it's not a question of whether you are remembering this thing correctly. You know, maybe the thing you thought happened to you really didn't happen to you. And there's no way to go back and check. Okay, no, this is in every present moment something that can be recognized about the nature of consciousness. Why do people keep claiming incorrectly that Hitler, Stalin, Mao, and Pol Pot were atheists? Well, what's incorrect about the claim is that they were motivated by atheism. That the idea that there is no God was the reason they created all the suffering and mayhem that they did. Some of them probably were atheists. I, I certainly think that Stalin and Mao and Pol Pot were atheists. Hitler seems to have believed a fair amount of religious nonsense, as you know and famously referred to Jesus throughout his speeches. Uh, whether he was actually a Christian or not, I don't know. But the crucial point is that the behavior of someone like Stalin 
creating gulags and sending intellectuals there and presiding over the starvation of his people, etc., was not an expression of atheism as a set of ideas. Whereas when people are murdered for blasphemy or apostasy in a Muslim society, this is a direct expression of a religious ideology. Now, if Hitler gave speech after speech detailing how his rejection of God and his certainty that there was no heaven or hell was leading him to behave in the way that he did, if he kept saying, I'm going to kill the Jews because I hate them as a source of Abrahamic religion, and I'm an atheist, and I'm opposed to all religion, okay, if that was the content of his conversation, well, then yes, we could draw a line between his beliefs and his behavior. And we, we might wonder whether there's a necessary connection between a rejection of God and this kind of behavior. But at the very least, we would be able to say that the conscious adoption of atheism in this context was leading him to behave this way. But of course, that was not the character of his conversation at all. And his hatred of the Jews was a rather direct inheritance from 2,000 years of Christian demagoguery. And everything else he was committed to, this whole notion of the purity of German blood and everything else, amounted to a quasi-religious mythology. All of the other trappings of Nazism, that the personality cult of the Third Reich, had many of the features of a religion, as did life under Stalin or Pol Pot, and the, and the same is true of North Korea now. These are quasi-religious mass movements. These are political religions. The problem is not that there is too much skepticism or too much of a commitment to empirical reality. As I've said before on this topic, and I think it, it really does cover it, there's no society in human history that ever suffered because its people became too reasonable, too committed to evidence and argument. And that's all you need to know to put this canard to rest. How do you stay so cool all the time? I don't think I've ever seen you raise your voice in an argument. Well, I'm not a yeller, but I'm certainly not cool all the time. In my latest book, Waking Up, I give a few examples where I've lost my cool. But in public debate, I, th I think it's important to remain strictly rational and honest. And, and getting pissed off is generally not an asset. At least it's not one for me. Now, I, I should say, however, that I think outrage is sometimes warranted and can be very useful to express uh, you know, the, the way Hitch often did. Uh, and there are many encounters I've had where I, it would have been great to have traded places with Hitch and just have swapped him in tag-team style for a, um, a much-deserved application of fire and brimstone. But I, I think Hitch probably did this to a fault. I think it made him seem like a less reliable interlocutor than, than he, in fact, was on many topics. But in many cases, I do think his application of anger was spot-on, and, and I wish it was a gear I had that I could shift into. I just, if I have it, I haven't found it yet, because I am working in a different mode in conversations of this kind. Uh, I'm just trying to get out of the way and track what is true. But that's not to say that I never get angry. and It just doesn't tend to happen in face-to-face -face encounters about ideas. You know, it'll happen behind the keyboard more than it will happen behind the mic. And part of this is that there is something about face-to-face -face encounters that make it difficult to demonize one's opponent. And I think that's a good thing. I'm very aware that when one is colliding with some odious person online, purely through the vehicle of text, it's possible to be arguing with someone who only exists in your imagination. And needless to say, I've been on the receiving end of this kind of thing. And it's incredibly annoying. You know, when you're, when you're just behind the keyboard, you don't get any of the social cues that would allow you to empathize with your opponent or, or at a minimum go halfway toward understanding his position. So you can wind up manufacturing an enemy and attacking him for views that he doesn't actually hold. 
And what you say in that context, or, or write, will not be constrained by whatever he would have said in real time to correct your distortion of his views. And this is why so much debate online is just totally unproductive. Is your primary motive in criticizing religion to uphold the truth, ensure that no harm comes, or something else entirely? Well, it's, it's both of the first two things. Um, I certainly want to believe things that are true. That is, to have my beliefs track reality insofar as we can understand it. And I also want to minimize the specific harms that would otherwise be unthinkable, but for the crazy things that people believe in the name of religion. And in fact, the most important things that anyone has ever gotten out of religion, the experience of self-transcendence or unconditional love, these states of consciousness exist or not and can be experienced or not based on a very direct empirical exploration of our own mental life. And such inquiry does not require belief in anything other than that it would be worth exploring consciousness directly to see what it's like. And there are methods for doing this, and they, they simply do not depend upon faith. So it's my sense that, that religion has poisoned and obscured the only resource it ever had in the first place, the contemplative life, that also makes me eager to criticize it. Can you comment on your spat with Noam Chomsky, your initial critique of him in the end of faith? Do you stand by it? I'm a big fan, but I just don't get this. Well, I'm not aware of having a spat with him. I, he's actually taken a few shots at me online, and... Uh, but I, we've never met, and I'm not aware of him having read The End of Faith or having noticed what I've said about his politics. So to some degree, we could just be talking on parallel channels here. Uh, but I just think there is a kind of moral confusion expressed in his political writing which ignores intention as a basis upon which to evaluate certain human behavior. At the end of the day, he's, he simply wants to use body count as the only metric to discuss the moral stature of two sides in a conflict. So if we kill a dozen children unintentionally, well, that's every bit as bad as doing it intentionally. Okay, that, I think, is a bad way to look at human conflict. I think the people who are intending to kill children are different than the people who are intending to kill the people who are killing children and are accidentally killing children in the process. It's a huge difference. You have to ask yourself, well, what kind of world does any group or society want to create? How do they want the world to be? And what would they do if they had all the power? And when you ask that question, you get very different answers for specific groups, no matter how much misery and death is happening on both sides of a conflict. And when you look at World War II, it was just a horrific wastage of human life. But the difference between the Allies and the Nazis was absolutely categorical. What sort of world did the Third Reich want to create? Okay. And what did we want to create on our side? We did horrible things. The firebombing of Dresden, the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Absolutely grotesque acts of violence, where hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people over the course of the war, died. But what sort of world were we trying to build? What were, and what were our intentions with respect to the Germans and the Japanese, really? Well, you saw our intentions, because after the war, we did not murder everyone. We helped rebuild their societies. So we're not perfect, but we were different from the Nazis. So you can't just look to body count, merely, to judge the rightness or wrongness of human behavior. And, and Chomsky seems to discount intentions across the board and only look at body count. And if you do that in any given instance, you come away with a perverse description of what's happening in the world. And you come away believing the kinds of things that people influenced by Chomsky tend to believe, whether it's Glenn Greenwald or 
and the other person who's drunk this Kool-Aid. And you can end up saying things like, the United States is the greatest terrorist state in human history, right, or some other such nonsense. There is a difference between the Dick Cheney's of the world and the al-Baghdadi's of the world. And it is crucial that people on the left understand that. And as far as I can tell, Chomsky has been a source of pure moral confusion on this point. What is your biggest regret and why? Well, I don't actually spend a lot of time regretting things. It doesn't make a lot of psychological sense to me. You know, if, if you get me focused on a specific thing I did in the past where the outcome wasn't good, well, then I, I can certainly wish that I had made a different decision or uh, that my life had taken a different turn there. But, but everything that has happened, everything that I did or didn't do, has conspired to produce precisely this moment. And it seems to me that the only reasonable use of my attention now is to figure out how to navigate forward from here towards some desirable end. But, you know, there are things in my past which I certainly think were not optimal and I wish I had done differently. I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is dropping out of college as an undergraduate. You know, I took 11 years off between my sophomore and junior year at Stanford. And Stanford is one of the only schools, I think, where you can actually do this. This has allowed me to do many things that I certainly don't regret and that were incredibly valuable for me. You know, I spent about two years on silent retreat in my 20s, and I read hundreds of good books, and I, I spent a fair amount of time writing. So it's not that I wasted all that time, but I, I didn't appreciate the difference between dropping out as an undergraduate and taking time off between college and graduate school. But psychologically, it seems to me the difference is huge. And I remember spending one, two, three years more dimly realizing that I wanted to go back to school and wanted to go to graduate school and feeling just unable to do it because I just felt too old to go back and finish my undergraduate degree. It was just embarrassing to be that old as an undergraduate. And so at a cer certain point, I just realized I had to do it, and I was, I was 30 at the time. And at that point, I really wished I had realized this at 25. Or better still, I wished I had taken the break between college and graduate school. So when people write me, you know, asking me advice about their academic careers and they, you know, the people who are wondering about whether to drop out of school and they're trying to, trying to use my career as an example about how to plot their course, I'm really adamant on this point. I mean, you can basically do anything you want and still finish school. You, know, you can say, if you want to sit three months a year on a retreat, you can do that in your summers. And from that point on, then you can decide how you want to further your education and whether there's some career open to you that, that doesn't require more school. But dropping out, I think, is a bad idea. Because you're not in a position to know how hard it's going to be psychologically to go back and finish. And, and this was something I was blindsided by, because I, I felt for a very long time that I was playing catch-up in a way that was stressful, and, and it's not something I would, I would wish on any of you. So stay in school. And with that, I conclude another podcast. <laughs>